I like a crazy person and taking Korean for fun. Oh my god. Yeah, definitely not an easy language. Uh, while trying to find a job, I volunteer tutor online oh, uh, for uh, an immigrant, like, mainstreaming, I guess you could say, um, yeah. community um, service group. So I do stuff with that, but obviously oh. need to make money at some point. So Yeah, yeah. oh, I feel <laughs> it's that. It's a hard uh, market to get into. <laughs> so... This week, Libby is on the call, and we have a special guest with us who I'll announce in a minute. This episode is specifically in honor of National Adoption Awareness Month, which is the month of November, and Libby and I are so, so excited to get into this week's episode. We really want to continue spreading awareness around adoption and just the nuances of it all. We feel that this would be a really good opportunity to have a guest, and one of our AMW community members actually reached out to us, so we're really trying to take advantage of this opportunity and have more conversation. And I think this is going to be a really great time because this individual has experience living abroad in China and Taiwan. She is also another Chinese American adoptee. I believe she was raised in about the Midwest region. Um, I know we were trying to coordinate things and she said she was central time. Um, so I will let her introduce herself now. Hi, I'm May Kelly. I was adopted from Jiangmen, Guangdong province. I grew up in Chicago. Um, I graduated during, you know, the quarantine pandemic situation from San Francisco State University as a Mandarin flagship language student. Um, currently trying to figure out the whole like post-college adulting, but also, you know, the financial issues of um, the pandemic. So kind of bumming around, also totally um, into this whole, like, let's get more of this adoption awareness and just resources out to the community, because as uh, an adoptee growing up, I really wanted stuff like that. And I was kind of late to the game getting into the adoption community. I didn't get into the, the vaster adoption community until I was like senior year of high school or junior year of high school around then, and that's kind of late. I did grow up with an adoption community in a suburb of, of Chicago, but that it was my only knowledge was just these seven to ten adoptees that I just grew up with. So I definitely appreciate any uh, anything that uh, can help you know younger adoptees you know navigate what we're trying to navigate. So yeah, that's why I reached out, and that's why I wanted to you know do anything I can. <laughs> Thank you so much, May. I'm really glad that you did reach out. Um, and I, I was texting Olivia, it's like, because we're no, so new to this whole podcast thing, we don't really know, I guess, how it works or anything. But it was really, it's always exciting to hear from other people in the adoption community and just having conversations somehow. So I'm really glad you're here with us today. So you said you were studying, what was it again? It was Chinese. So it's like a specific, um, like, uh, how do you? I don't, it's called the flagship program. It's run through um, technically intelligence as a way to recruit mm -hmm. people, but also the main reason why people at San Francisco State were just doing it was um, that there's a ton and ton of scholarships. So mm -hmm. I did it because originally I was supposed to be in China for an entire year for free. Okay. So. Wow. That obviously changed with stuff, everything that would happen 
that happened in China. Um, yeah. And that's originally why I did the program. Um, so it is a language program. It just, instead of what used to be the Confucius Institute, um, they had their own program. This was the American version, American government version. Okay. Uh, but most people do it because of the, the scholarships. Okay. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess with this, you and you were saying you got into the adoptee community I guess maybe what you felt like was pretty, but I feel like, I don't know, I think we got into adoption. I will, I don't think I really got into the adoption community until college. So I, I think we like all, there's so many adoptees and I feel like everyone just has their own little timeline. So I hope, I hope you don't feel like you were too late to anything. <laughs> um, but when you were starting this whole, I guess, adoption journey, is that when you were starting to be more interested in your heritage and I guess where you came from and you wanted to spend more time in China and learn about the culture and the language is that how you got into it because i know this episode we're going to talk a little about how you were living in over in taiwan and china no uh actually when i was oh i'm so bad with ages i was like <laughs> nine or ten maybe i went back to do my homeland trip and that's what was like i i can't necessarily remember saying this or my mom says that when I was there, I turned to her and I said, like, I have to become fluent in Chinese. Like, it just has to happen. Because um, it was frustrating. I remember being frustrated that, like, I couldn't communicate with people. But everyone was commu- trying to communicate with me. And I just be there and I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Like, my dad can speak some Chinese, even though he's white. But I'm like, but I'm supposed to be the Chinese one here. Um, so, like, that's when I was like, okay, going to major or, like, double major in Chinese. Um, and I was always interested in China. My parents were always interested in China, even before, like, I was in the picture. Um, so, like, my love and, uh, well, it's a complex relationship, but my admiration yeah. for, for China started at a very young age. Um, getting into the adoption community happened later. Um, just because, like, to be honest, I don't do social media a ton. And so I didn't know there were, like, Facebook groups of this sort. Um, and I, my adoption friend, my adoptee friends, um, and I don't talk about adoption. So it wasn't, like, an open conversation. So I didn't know that there was, it was an open conversation maybe with other people. Um, but, no, I, I'd always wanted to go back to China. It was, like, I was expressed it as, like, I was homesick. After going to going over going the first time, I was like, I'm I just really want to go back. It was really cool going there. It was so different. Um, it smelled familiar. Like it made sense. Um, and so like the goal was always to go back. And uh, I picked specific programs based on that. Okay. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess if you don't mind, can we just dive into this? I guess where what program did you start with? And maybe take us along that journey, whatever, what, what it was like to be over there as an adoptee. And I don't know if maybe that affected some of your experience and how you related to things you saw. Yeah, definitely it did. <laughs> um, so just as context as a child, I went back to the Guangdong province, went to Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Jiangmen, uh, Yangshou, Guilin. Um, so we hit a lot of the southern area. Also, I was very young. And then when I was maybe 19, 2016, um, I went to Xi'an, China. 
where the terracotta warriors are mm-hmm. through um, a community college program, um, College of Lake County here in Illinois. They had this, you know, fairly cheap um, study abroad program, and especially because it was at, uh, you know, the community college level. So I did four months in Xi'an through wow. a semester program there. And uh, it was an experience. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't like trade it for the world. I needed to experience it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, that's when I really needed the adoptee community because I don't know if other adoptees feel this, but you know, it's a natural human being feeling to be like, I want to fit in. I want to be accepted. And as a child going to southern China. No one batted an eye that I was like walking around with my white parents, mm-hmm. but the fact that I was in Xi'an, and you can think of it as like Iowa or something, like kind of the <laughs> middle of nowhere, starting to get its like it's like modern, like this and that, but like pretty much like things hit it last because it's in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. So like they didn't, they had never met any Asian Americans before, let alone adoptees. So I kept saying, I'm like, I'm this anomaly, I'm this unicorn, and they don't know what to do with me. So, because uh, I had gone in thinking, I can get accepted, I can just like be part of like the community, and they're like, who are you? Why does your Chinese suck? Um, <laughs> you kind of look like us, we can't tell because your Chinese sucks, so maybe you're actually Korean or Japanese. Um, and I was like, I'm smashing my head against a brick wall. And all I want to do is like, have them be like, yes, you're Chinese. And like, it's awesome that, you know, you're trying your best to learn the language. Whereas like, they'd sing their praises towards like any other like, white person trying to learn. Um, and I think what made it worse is that my Hispanic friends, they all thought they were Chinese, but I wasn't Chinese which like drove me insane. <laughs> so it was definitely like an identity uh, uh, transformation of like, okay, am I Chinese enough? I don't think I had ever gone through that. I don't know if you guys have gone through that. We're like, yeah, like, I definitely have. Yeah. Like you are connected with your Asian-ness enough. So you're super like Asian. And then you go around and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. What kind of Asian are you? <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know. I don't want to take like the spotlight away from, but like I had an experience really similar to that when I was in um, Guatemala because I was doing Peace Corps there. But it was again like you're saying, it's like you're an anomaly because they're like, oh my god, where are you from? Like, how are you Chinese? You don't look like us. You don't sound like us. And I speak Spanish with a very American accent, and so like, I promise you, I'm from the United States. But you have to like always be defending yourself and being like no I am this I am that and then maybe sometimes inside you're like oh crap am I really Chinese enough am I really and then you have this internal identity crisis so I can definitely relate to that yeah so uh, it's it's hard because they don't prep you for this mm-mm. like they yeah. prep you for everything else but the one thing that like because I wasn't the only Asian American there there's another guy who's Filipino Chinese and like he was something special because he could pick up languages super easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, yeah, we both got, like, s- stuff for, you know, not being, you know, not having the highest level that we could possibly have of Chinese. 
but yet having you know that Chinese background. So. Yeah, and you were in Xi'an. That was for four months. You said. Mm-hmm. Did you have conversations with other people you were on the trip with about how this experience was for you, or because I know you're saying too, it would have been good to have the adoption community around. I guess how could that have affected your experience or changed it? So when I did start to go through a bit of an identity crisis, um, I had actually talked to um, one of the girls I was adopted with because mm-hmm. she was doing something for um, a pageant or whatever and like wanted to talk to me about um, some of the adoption work I had done in high school. And even just talking to her, even though it wasn't about like necessarily everything I was going through, helped me like helped I guess ground myself and saying like okay this is like we're like voicing the issues because I couldn't talk to anyone no one else is adopted in the program so like their experiences other people going through like racist stuff because they were black and you know there's a lot of ignorance um in Asia about around black people um along with just being people being racist but um Mm. they were going through their own thing uh, and then we had white people who they didn't seem to have any problems because I loved them. Um, so talking to her really helped. And then I did start popping on. Um, I didn't use the VPN often to go on Facebook. I started to go through the CCI community board and just, like, see what other people were saying. I think I might have posted one or two things being like, all right, how do I survive this? I'm like, I don't really know what's going on. I've never been told I'm not Asian enough before. And other people were like, yes, I've totally experienced this before. And I'm like, oh. That would have been nice to know earlier if I had, like, thought about posting it earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I guess I went in not knowing that I'd have these kind of, like, identity conflicts or whatnot. Um, so it probably wouldn't have been, like, this this hard experience for as long as it was if I had probably reached out to the DOMD community um, then uh than the way I went about it which is like I'll deal with this on my own but also like I don't really know what I'm doing <laughs> um so yeah that's why I make sure like I do I don't I, I'm not super active on social media but whenever people say like I'm going abroad I'm like okay these are the things that I went through like try not to go through the same thing um yeah. be like mm, I went through it hopefully you won't have to go through it so all my suffering was it in vain yeah well at least like I think that's really great, though, that you're able to reach out and just share that because I know just going abroad in general, however you do it, especially as an Asian American, you go abroad, people have obviously don't know you're adopted and yeah. they just look at you and they have this automatic assumption that you're from Asia. And especially like when I was in Guatemala, it's like, oh, every Asian is Chinese. And then we had to go through the whole spiel of like, well, it's not like that. And it's just it's a lot. And I think at least having a voice out there where it's like, hey, you're going abroad, heads up, just a simple heads up. And so people have it in their head. And that's just even a thought before going abroad, I think is really big. Um, It makes a difference, I think, in someone's abroad experience, especially when they are there for an extended amount of time and they're interacting a lot with the community and you have to always be defending yourself. It just gets exhausting. Libby and I, we went on a trip to China. And so we did, it was like, what was it, Libby? Like families with children from China? We went in 07. And it was with like this, this woman organized all of it. And she also had children 
adopted from China, which is why she was taking back other families that had children adopted from China. So you, me, and Emma went in 07, and then mm-hmm. I went back again in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess... But I, uh, I had, like, kind of the same experience where it's, like, I don't speak the language. And, like, when I went back with my husband, like, when we sat down for dinner or to eat or out went out anywhere, I would be in the very back to avoid anybody trying to talk to me at all. Especially, like, if you're trying to buy something and then, like, you want, my in-laws wanted to negotiate the price. Like, if they knew that I didn't speak Chinese and I was, like, technically a tourist, like, we would get ripped off so bad. So I would just stand in the very back. Like, it would be my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, Gung, and then me. And then, like, at dinner, like, I didn't want any of the waitresses talking to me at all. So I would be shuffled into, like, the back so that, like, the family could take care of everything. I've been thinking about wanting to go back maybe in the, like probably with you in the next couple of years when we're not in a pandemic anymore. Um, but I do, I don't know. I get, I do get nervous. And I think after going in what, 07, I, I guess not that I had like my fix. I was like, okay, great. I went to China. I went back to go see my birthplace and all, but I went through this period of time where I think, I was really angry and Libby, you can probably remember this. I think you do. I was like really angry about the adoption and I was kind of not rejecting it necessarily, but definitely not handling it in the most positive light. Um, And then through high school and a little college, I tried taking Mandarin, but then again, I think I had that identity crisis where it's like, why am I even doing this? I'm never going to speak Mandarin like a native person. And it got really discouraging. So then I kind of took a break for it. I focused a lot on outside work with the Latin American community. Um, but I think since doing this podcast and since starting it, when did I start this? Like Jan- June in the summer, I think. It's opened my eyes a lot to the adoption community that I hadn't really seen before. Because until recently, I don't think I've been this involved in it ever in my life. And I wasn't really planning on it. It just kind of happened because I was like, oh, maybe I should do a podcast. And what would I talk about? Well, adoption is really relevant in my life and I think it's a super niche thing that is really important to the adoptee community because we find ourselves in these positions where we're like maybe going abroad to our birth country and we don't know what to expect and having that community to be able to lean on and talk about it with I think is really important um so you spent time in China and then also when you were in Taiwan was that at a different time or was that kind of simultaneously yeah it was a different time so I did Another two months in Shanghai in 2018 okay. um, through my San Francisco program, an intensive language program. But at least by then, I kind of knew, okay, this is what to expect. They know nothing about adoptees. They know nothing about all the girls they sent abroad, even though, what, it's over, like, 100,000 girls. Um, they just were completely unaware. And probably due to the way just, you know, the government um, told their people. So no fault of their own. Um, and so definitely going back in 2018 wasn't as intense. or wasn't as, like, it, big of an issue. Also, Shanghai is very westernized. Um, so they're used to seeing foreigners, not adoptees. So it was, like, one less barrier to get through. Um, but I definitely remember having to explain this is my parents. By the time I ended Xi'an's program, like I had my parents' picture on like the, my like my camera roll or whatever, and it was like, "This is my parents. I'm adopted." 
I got really good at telling people that and showing them like they're actually white. They're like not just American, they're white. Because um, like if I didn't speak well enough, especially with cabbies, they were they were not having it with me. They just yell at me. They'd be like, Ooh. "Why the hell is your Chinese so bad? Why are you talking so slow? I've got things to do." And I'm like, "Okay, okay, 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 bye." Yeah, like you're doing um, your best. Yeah, um, those who like would take their time with me, or like if I saw them all the time, because we there was a food street. Uh, what do we call it? Street food. Yeah. Um, right next to the uh, campus, and so I had my regulars I would go to. Uh, and I just remember one guy was like, um, I went to get like my fried rice from or whatever. There was a guy who was next to him who was like his friend or whatever, but I didn't always see him all the time. And he's like, you know, just like, so she looks Asian. And the guy and the guy I'd be getting food from, he's like, yeah, she's a she's an international student at the school. And he'd be like, is she Chinese? And he'd be like, no, she's American, but she was born here. She told me that like couple weeks ago and then he's like can you speak Chinese and then I turned to him and I was like yeah I can speak Chinese I'm here studying Chinese and he goes oh. <laughs> and I was like I'm adopted my parents are white I'm here studying Chinese and he'd be like oh wow he's like that's very good for you to do and stuff and that was like the only time you get people to say like oh okay like we understand your parents are white you're adopted mm-hmm. um is if like you could have that long enough conversation and so I was able to do that in uh, Shanghai as well um, but also I was with a lot of other Asian Americans in Shanghai. I don't know why the program just had more Asian Americans. Um, there's actually another girl with my name, more or less. Which oh, is really? odd. Um, her Chinese name also had May in it. And my like American name is May. Okay. So then my Chinese name is also then May. Um, so that was odd something I never experienced in my life and I was like wait you're May I'm May we're in the same class too Uh uh-oh and our last name like I just use Jiang which is um River and that's um my hometown like Mm -hmm. that city name and I was like that just makes sense um and hers was Wong and I was like wow (sighs) my poor teacher (laughs) Jiang May Wong May uh oh yeah Um, so that was definitely a new experience but being with her and then some of our other white friends and this kind of happened in Xi'an like people thought we were the translators for them oh. um which I found hilarious <laughs> uh and so we would test things out like um we said like if um May and I would go and bargain and stuff mm-hmm. we would get, get the best deals but then we tested it and had our other friends do who were white they would get ripped off so bad it was hilarious like we would bargain something first and then we'd be like, okay, well, we're going to go check out another stall and then we'll come back and see. And then she would come and, at, at, and try to bargain for the same thing, but she couldn't get it as low as we did. And so we'd just go back and buy it for her. <laughs> and why is this happening? We're like, wow, it's actually pretty cool to be Asian now. <laughs> yeah. Then Taiwan, which is a whole different experience. I lived there for six months last year, right before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there from June until Black Friday, so wow. November. Um, it, yeah, it was a crazy experience. I finished up San Francisco, all my classes at San Francisco State, somehow packed up within you know four or five days, 
threw myself on a plane back to Chicago. I had 10 days to pack up six months worth of stuff for Taiwan and then threw myself on another plane. Um, this program was called TUSA. Um, you can apply to it if you're going, if you're in bachelor's, your undergrad, or if you're going even into a master's. Um, so I'd say like a good like maybe third of the group were master's students. Um, it's a, a government-funded program through Taiwan. Uh, so the reason I did it was a lot of it was paid for. You have to pay for just your food, your flight, and like any other like extra stuff um, for the summer. And then I just extended my time there by applying um, to their fall program. Um, so there was students from across the country, um, a lot of Asian American students, which was very surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, like this is great. Uh, like a lot of them, either none of them were adopted, um, but they they were like second, third generation. So they just wanted to like, you know, appeal to their parents and be like, okay, I tried the language. I went abroad on a cheaper program, and I tried. Um, but yeah, so very different. Uh, Taiwan's definitely much nicer uh, than China is about like if your language isn't great um, since they have way more Westerners coming in and out of the country um, and just like they're not as uh, intense and as blunt as the Chinese can be and that's nothing wrong with China like I, I kind of enjoy the bluntness um, it's very different uh, than you know other countries can be uh, but yeah, Taiwan, you you can think of it as, like, a very Asianized, like, American city. Um, as you can say, it's kind of like San Francisco, where they're still, like, very polite. You know, they still have their Asian, Asian traits and stuff. Um, Shanghai was a lot like New York. You know, expensive, very metropolis, kind of, not metropolis, metropolitan. Um, and, like, kind of fast-paced and only business. And then Xi'an would be like, your Midwest cornfield, kind of rude, kind of too blunt if you're like not prepared for it. Um, but like, they're trying to learn. They, they do put forth the effort to try to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, so I definitely would say Taiwan, like if you're going to China or that kind of area for the first time and you wanna go to a place that speaks Mandarin, uh, Taiwan first then Shanghai, uh, and then you can try some like Guangzhou, Beijing, and then I do like Xi'an and Chengdu last because they're the furthest in. The further you go in, the harder it is to get like people to like understand your situation. Mm. Um, if you have limited Chinese, like if, if you're fluent, you go wherever the heck you want to go. <laughs> um, but if you're like mid to like non-existing Chinese, uh, I would go to like more westernized areas first because it'll just it definitely will shape the way you perceive China um, and like I'm not saying that China's amazing or anything I'm not saying America's amazing or anything but I think it's definitely worth a couple shots because um, I think people write it off if they have one bad experience and I'm like yes China has its like really bad sides but they also have some really beautiful sides um, Southern China is my most favorite place. Um, actually, Xi'an's another one of my favorite places because they have a huge Muslim population, um, which I think is a great asset. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm a history geek. So like the Silk Road, it starts it starts there. The China section starts in Xi'an. Um, they have beautiful museums. Um, so there's a lot of history there. Um, I'll double back to Taiwan because I didn't really talk much about Taiwan. Uh, I lived in Tainan, the southern capital of Taiwan. Um, everything's in traditional Chinese. So you probably have learned simplified if you ever learned Chinese. Um, so I was very confused for the first couple months. <laughs> I still am confused because, you know, there's certain, now I mix them all up and now I mix up traditional and simplified, which is quite unfortunate. Um, so it was very interesting to be like, okay, I can speak at a pretty high capacity, but reading, like I couldn't read most of the menus. I'd be like, what is uh, that character again? Can can you tell me what it is in Simplified or can you just read it to me? <laughs> um, and I just had certain places I would go to because I have dietary restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unfortunate. I can't have wheat, dairy, or soy. Ooh. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. So I would tell my teachers, I'd be like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I was told there'd be rice. <laughs> you guys don't use a ton of rice, which would have been nice to know. Um, yeah, so that was an interesting situation. Yeah, um, I feel like that's so, a whole nother load of challenges on top of just being uh, there and acclimating. Yeah, it was, it, there were things, um, I had it anticipated and there were things that like I was super excited about. So I do, um, I enjoy cupping, uh, the glass cupping. I think it's much better than a massage. Also, I find massages very painful <laughs> just because I am I hold a lot of stress in my back so like there was great I was getting cupping for like I think like four or five bucks and it was great wow. it was what I wanted it to be so I don't uh, know if this is a dumb question but does it basically just loosen the tension in your muscles with the heat mm-hmm. okay yeah 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 so what I like and not all places do it it's more of like an older style they take the glass mm-hmm. um like cup or jar or whatever and they put a flame under it which sucks out all the oxygen they stick it on your body Mm -hmm. and so what that does it um takes out the toxins and releases a lot of the tension at the same time but the um good thing about um cupping versus massages is that it lasts for about a week or two um yeah the there's this whole thing of like you can't get it cold though so you i you always had to take a shower before doing it Mm -hmm. um couldn't use the ac Ooh. In Taiwan, and I did it in Shanghai as well. Like, it's it's so hot. Like, mm-hmm. being in Asia in the summer messed up my like internal thermometer. So like, this past summer, I was like, this is nothing. I was in like a hundred degree, like uh, humidity and like typhoon areas, and like this is nothing. And it'd be like ninety five here. My parents would be like, it's so hot. I'm like, nah, I can do this. Let's go. <laughs> I can do this. Um, so that was a little bit tough. Um, there's also things around like women's periods. Like you're also supposed to not like drink cold water. Mm-hmm. Um, anything cold you weren't supposed to eat. You're not supposed to like get, have like have wet hair. Um, Cause it could take down your immune system, which totally makes sense. And I like totally get. And so you have to do the same thing when you're trying to get these toxins out of your body. You're supposed to be chugging warm water or hot water. Um, I'm very used to like the whole, I don't drink cold water. I don't use ice in water. Um, it's not great for your digestion. Um, so like those kind of things I was already assimilated to. 
the whole showering thing was a thing I had to be like, okay, I got to run to shower first and then go to the place. Um, but ACs, yeah, like I could have it on, but we couldn't have it cold. Mm. So I'd just be like sitting in there, sweating, and I'd be like, okay. Blowing hot air. Yeah, so like, do I go outside in the heat and sweat more, but then I don't have the temptation to like have a fan on me or like have AC on? Or do I continue to sit here where it's like kind of cooler, but also I'm sitting in my like sweat? <laughs> so yeah. there, there are similar things to the mainland. Like, so like a lot of that um, Eastern medicine, which I'm just someone who is very interested in it. My parents have done it for years. Um, and then like, I you I don't know if you remember being in Asia, but the train stations in China, like you just shove yourself on the train. There's mm-hmm. no lines. There's no people waiting for you. You're trying to shove yourself onto the train where there's just enough clearance where the doors close. Mm. In Taiwan, and this is like my first like getting into Taiwan, they stand in lines to get on the train mm-hmm. and I, when our friend picked us up from the airport, I was just like, what is happening? They're like, you stand in line. Remember, you can't eat a drink on the train. You're not supposed to speak loudly. And oh I was like, God. what? <laughs> <laughs> I've never experienced this before. I just assumed everyone just shoves themselves on the train and try, are close to people as possible. Mm-hmm. But like, there is actually, like, you get your own distance. People say sorry when they ram into you. Um, and so that was very, very different than the mainland, um, where like you get shoulder checked all the time. I'm five foot two, so I'm teeny. So most people don't look down to see me. And so like, I'm being thrown around all the time. Taiwan, Taiwanese are pretty short though. So, uh, the guys were like maybe five, seven tops. I had friends who were like five, nine. I had girlfriends who were five, nine who would just tower over the guy. (laughs) I found it hilarious. It probably freaked out the guys a lot. <laughs> uh, but that was a huge, like, culture shock. Because mm-hmm. it was my own ignorance thinking, yeah, it's going to be so much in the mainland, just, like, a little bit more westernized. That was very wrong. They're, like, <laughs> very, very westernized. I think probably because of the American and Japanese influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese influence for toast and cheese. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> Huh. Well, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Um, it's not unfortunate. It's just unfortunate for me because I can't have those. Yeah. Things. Um, yeah, because I went to Japan for forty eight hours, like mm-hmm. a crazy person. Um, <laughs> I I had to reset my visa because uh-huh. we were just there on visitors visas, and they're like, leave the country for like a handful of days and then go back, and it'll reset your visa. You can only do it once. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Um, so I went to Japan. That was the first time I'd ever been to a country that wasn't a Mandarin-speaking country. So I knew nothing. Oh. <laughs> I didn't even know how to answer, or like, uh, order food or, like, answer mm-hmm. any questions. And I was, like, it took me a while to figure out how to get on the train and get to, like, the Airbnb I was staying at. Mm-hmm. Um, and traveling as a solo female, I thought was, like, very scary. Um, besides the fact that, like, Technically, I was traveling solo to get all, to all these programs, but um, I planned everything myself. So I, uh, I again, like history and stuff, so I went to a bunch of temples. <laughs> that, was, that was what I thought would be fun to do in Japan. Um, I definitely regret not watching more food videos and being like, 
that's what I should have. Um, like takoyaki. I didn't know how to order it. I kept seeing it everywhere. And I was like, but how do I know if I'm ordering the right thing? Like uh-huh. the cheat day, I can like have a little bit of wheat. I can have a little bit of dairy. But, like I didn't know what I was ordering. I didn't know what to do. Uh-huh. Um, people didn't bat an eye though, which was interesting. Cause as long as in this habit in Chiang, like as long as I didn't speak, people would think I was Chinese. The moment I said something, uh-huh. people would be like, oh, no, no. She can't be Chinese. You blew your cover. <laughs> yeah, I blew my cover. Um, in Taiwan, it's the same thing. But and sometimes the way I dress, because I dress more tomboy. Um, Taiwan, a lot of females dress more tomboy. They didn't. The females I uh, saw walking around the campus didn't dress up as much as they did in China. Definitely in China, they the. Uh, I think a lot of it was because a lot of students have you know separate high schools. So college is their like is their like first time they get to be in school again with guys, and there's a lot of that high school drama of like relationships and like whatnot. That like I tried to avoid as much as possible. <laughs> we don't want to experience that again. I was yeah at a high school like oh, no that drama can happen elsewhere. Yeah, um, leave it behind. Yeah, but girls would like wear heels, put their face on, and I'd be there like looking kind of frumpy like. With my leggings and my like athleisure clothes and I'm like it's hot I need stuff that quick dries I need stuff that's comfortable if I'm going to sit in an uncomfortable desk for four hours um or in the winter now I'm very acclimated to like I'll wear my coat and cl- you always wear your coat your coat in like class and stuff in the winter because uh the the heater would only hit like would only get so hot um mm-hmm. and I was too short for the heater to like hit my head like everyone else's <laughs> Um, so I'd just be there in my, in my little down jacket, shivering, trying to do school. (laughs) Um, it doesn't normally snow in Xi'an, it, or it didn't in the past, and it just started to, starting in 2015, and so I had friends from, like, Daegu, Korea, who had never seen snow, were carrying around their umbrellas, and they're like, this is what you do with snow, and they're like, it's, it's not rain, it doesn't work like this. (laughs) Um... So, yeah, there's a lot of different. Yeah. Because we were with international students, um, because Xi'an was the most backwards, I guess you could say, with quotations around it. I'm doing this, forgetting it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> and then Taiwan and Shanghai being like the most like westernized. So mm-hmm. they were, I think it, for me, someone who like, had been dying to go back to China. I think it was great for me to experience Xi'an and like really understand, okay, this is one of the hardest times I'll have to deal with certain things. And then it got easier and easier from there. Um, and just the way that Taiwan is, Taipei, a lot of people know Taipei, kind of like Shanghai, because there's so much business and trade coming in and out of Taiwan, um, that it's very easy to acclimate there. It's just it's not as westernized as Shanghai. So I'd say it's like, kind of like San Francisco, where it's like, everyone knows it. It's not like the number one modernized city in the country, but like, it's it's there. You can see a lot of the old parts of what Taiwan is in Taipei, which I found very interesting. So you'd still see like the clothes hangers with everybody's undies and stuff hanging out the window. And like, it's not all fancy schmancy um and like you're still eating at in and out kind of like restaurants um but like 
it's still westernized enough for those who've never been there before. Mm, okay. I guess being in China and Taiwan, do you ever wish that you had had the opportunity to have been raised there? Um, I would never give up my life here. Uh, I, I am, and I don't want people to twist it. I am grateful for the, the life I've been given here. It's not like I was saved or my parents are some savior thing. Um, I don't like that complex that people put on adoption. Um, but I am thankful for the opportunities that I've been given to be in a family that actually admires Chinese history and the culture. Um, I know other people who haven't had that experience, who haven't had people who, my mom loves Tai Chi. My dad and mom have been working with a Chinese doctor for years on various different things. I've gotten the opportunity to do cupping in do Chinese herbs at a young age um, and like understand that it's not a hoax. It's like actually real stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I think because I've had a lot of that just already woven into my um, childhood of like understanding, you know, Chinese New Year's this, autumn, fest, autumn, um, autumn moon or harvest moon, um, they kind of do this and that and being able to even experience autumn moon in um, China on the mainland and in um, Taiwan, seeing what it was like from, you know, the actual countries, like uh, their own celebration. Um, it's definitely eye-opening. Just for where I was adopted from, I don't think I would have had any opportunities that I have now. Um, so it is humbling, I guess you can say. I wouldn't change what I have. Um, I do sometimes wish that I had put forth more of an effort to learn Chinese as a child. Because um, I, you know, you do your little groups on like Sundays and mm -hmm. all you're learning is how to say like your favorite fruit and like, I'm this. Well, I mean, this is your May May. My name's May. Like those mm -hmm. like very basic things. Um, and like asking my dad props, he set up the Chinese program at my high school. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. He was like, we're going to do this. He said, you want to learn it? I'm going to help you set this up. I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a power yeah. move good for him and you too for like get, getting that going yeah so like I definitely once I was at the age where I could like kind of verbalize what I wanted to do mm -hmm. verbalize what I wanted to pursue um they were very very supportive of it um so I think what has changed the most is that I originally wanted to live in China for a little bit longer um post-graduation um just with the way it, everything is and the fact that I was part of the flagship program <laughs> means that I already the government already knows about my existence because I was part of the flagship program mm -hmm. since there are ROTC students and other to be operatives that unlike myself um do are in the program um we're already on you know China's radar which is a little unfortunate um so I definitely would see myself maybe living there for a year or two not for as extended as I thought I would teaching English um mm. or you know just like doing research or whatnot within um some field around adoption or education um I'm looking towards other Asian countries because now I'm I'm just a curious person and I just want to see what life is in other countries that have had Asian uh Chinese influence 
um, like Korea or even, you know, Vietnam. Um, and then I just have a love to go to other places in Asia as well and just see, you know, what is life really like um, from, you know, native standpoint and what more can I learn from them? Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I really like just first of all, I really admire that you're able to go back and do all this because I know for a lot of like adoptees and other second gen immigrants who I've talked to or like second generation people, um, it's really hard to find ways to connect to that birth country like that, that culture where we come from, because it can feel like we're so far removed from it. And I know that for a long time, even still, I feel really disconnected from Chinese culture, just because I don't have a ton of influence in my life like everyone I know now it's like they're English speaking or they're Spanish speaking like I don't really have a lot of ties to China um I think part of that's like it makes me a little bit sad but at the same time I'm really thankful that there's this little niche community community of Asian adoptees um so within your family was adoption always an open conversation or was it more of like when you brought it up they were receptive or was it just kind of like woven into day-to-day -day conversation um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Okay. I've, I've asked this question to other adoptees before. Um, I don't know if you know the book Love, was it Love You Like Crazy Cakes? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's that was a classic. my number one childhood book. So like I always, it was always an open conversation. My mom um, in the Chicagoland area worked for Head Start. So she knew mm -hmm. a lot about child development. Okay. Um, and so she knew from the get-go, like, this is an open conversation. You know that you're adopted. You obviously do not look like me. I'm not Irish. Yeah. Um, so we had that book. We had a couple other books that talked about adoption and, like, but, like, love me, like, love you like crazy cakes. Like, we had a signed copy. Uh, we had oh two God. of them. Um, it was, like, the book. Because I look like her. I look like the baby, too. Um, <laughs> my parents weren't married then so like it was it was literally the story my mom was going through and we I don't know who got it for us but we had the outfit that she had and like my mom put me in it and I had that hat like it was a thing oh my gosh. like I was that baby more I probably thought I was that baby and like this is our story um, <laughs> I was very gullible as a child too so it's like that would would have made sense um so it was always an open conversation I didn't really talk about it until high school um mm -hmm. somewhere s somewhere between somewhere in between yeah that that i i know what you're talking about yeah yeah so that's what opened up like the floodgates and that okay. was like being freshman or sophomore year of high school okay. and that's when I was like all right this whole adoption thing like let's start looking into it let's start figuring this out um because I had gotten into my Asian, like, identity in middle school through K-pop back when it wasn't cool. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, Big Bang is, like, awesome. Like, I understand their struggle. Like, they're, you know, they're not cool, but now they're super amazing. They take it with stride. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, BTS, 17, 2 p.m., all those people. So um, that was my way of seeing, okay, like, for instance, a group that I would act, like seventeen or like God seven. These are they they debuted a while ago. Um, they actually had Asian American um, oh. people who were highly successful within their group, and I was like, wow. So if they're successful, like I could be successful in Asia. 
Um, and so that kind of pushed me even further to be like, okay, actually living in Asia, maybe not a crazy idea. Um, and so after watching Somewhere Between, that pushed me to want to make my own kind of project around mm-hmm. adoption. Um, so when I referenced, like I've interviewed people before, um, in 2015, I, uh, produced and directed and edited with um a uh what is a mentor um a short documentary about adoption and identity yeah and that could be a conversation for another time yeah well i would love to hear about it later down the road yeah of course um but that's when i think it became a bigger and open not open it was already open but like a bigger and more central conversation around adoption Mm -hmm. was because i did a uh my senior studies my senior semester project was on like all right let's get to know my friends who adopted let's actually have conversations about it since we've never done it before mm-hmm. and then through that i knew that i could learn more about myself which is why i continue to do interviews and which is why i continue to try to learn more about other adoptees so then like i can better understand and articulate who i am through hearing other people's stories who are starkly different than mine. Because I admit, I live in a bubble. I live in a very liberal area. I just got lucky, and I know a bunch of other adoptees. Um, yeah. have families who are very open to adoption. Um, so it pushed it into, like, okay, it's not definitely not a day-to-day conversation, mm-hmm. but it pops up more than, like, when I was a child, and I wasn't thinking about, like, what does it mean to be adopted? What does it mean to be Asian? You know, yeah. we're maturity level where it kind of, we can recognize it influences more facets of our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, like as we get older, we're realizing more and more that, oh, we don't look like our parents. What's that about? Let me figure figure out what's going on here. And then, you know, we go into our various identity crises or singular ongoing crisis. Um, and it's just... I think it's like a really unique kind of trip to say the least that we're trying to connect to this foreign place wherever your birth country is and then you're going through this whole process of oh my god are they going to accept me are they not going to accept me oh my god they they can hear my accent they don't think I'm Chinese enough and then so we go through this I think it's like a vicious cycle because then we go through these highs where it's like yes I'm doing it I'm making it things are happening and then we hit a brick wall and we're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm falling apart. Like, this isn't working. Why Why did I think I could do this? Um, so it's just like putting yourself out there is a lot to begin with. And then just being another voice in the adoptee community, I think, is really important because, again, we, we're Asian-American, but we're coming from a different background of a lot of the times our parents aren't Asian or they don't know very much about Asian culture. And then it's kind of putting it on us to be able to figured out for ourselves, and there's no manual on like how to do this as adoptees no one tells us what to do um and even like it's so case by case just I think between the three of us we have three drastically different stories and with the thousands of babies who were put up or given up for adoption there's so many other stories that I think need to be given the time of day do you have any advice that you'd give other adoptees who are looking to go back to their birth countries what would you say to that yeah maybe if they're struggling and deciding they don't really know if they want to go back yeah i have actually done and this is part of a research project i did as a junior in high school so this is a little outdated but i still stand by it um 
Because I think before you turn, you know, ideally I would say 16, but at least let's say 18. Because, you know, not everyone has funds to go back abroad. I think before you graduate high school, all adoptees should go back to their home country. You don't have to go back to your orphanage if you don't want to, but at least experience your home country before you hit college. Um, I think in when I had done research, it said even, you know, psychologically, it's very, very important. Helps with your identity development um, for adoptees and, you know, for other people. Identity is something that's an ongoing process, but mostly you get it in, you know, by your late 20s, you get your pretty core identity situated situation figured out. But for adoptees, it's much more of an ongoing and, you know, changing situation. So I think to have within those, like, very formative years when your brain's still developing, when you're still understanding what the world is like before you hit college, where things can challenge your identity even further, um, it's important. Even if you're going there for 14 days, you're just going to the main cities, or you're just going to Taiwan, maybe not even the mainland, if you're from the mainland, um, or if you're going back to Vietnam, but you're not going to, you know, even the city or near the city where you're from, but you're going to Hanoi. Um, I think it's important for you just to say, yes, I experienced a piece of what my heritage is like um and i think it's totally okay if you don't feel like you need to learn the language to a certain fluency um i think it is important for all adoptees no matter where they're from if you speak a different if your homeland speaks a different um language than english or whatever you grew up with spanish french whatever it is um that you can at least say your name, where you were born, where you grew up, and that you're adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's all you really need to get people to like understand your situation. I fast-tracked that when I was in the Xi'an because I didn't know how to say I was adopted. I knew how to say I was Chinese. I knew how to say I was American. But I didn't know how to say I was born in China, grew up in America. I'm adopted. My parents are white. Mm-hmm. And so within my first few weeks, uh, with a couple of my friends, I was like, can you please write this down for me? I need to be able to say this so that people don't get mad at me mm-hmm. um, and, or people can understand where I'm coming from. My teachers won't think that, why is this kid slacking? Why is she in this lower level Chinese class? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of firsts and just kind of being open-minded to what your home country is like, mm-hmm. uh, depending on where you're from. Again, China is a, is a 360, 180, whatever you want to call it, it's starkly different than America. And so having that open mind, open-mindedness of being like, okay, this is going to be very different from what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to take everything with a grain of salt. If someone calls me fat, you know, they just haven't seen anyone with, you know, muscle before. Um, if they say I'm a bad Asian, that's because they just haven't met an adoptee or a Chinese American before. Um, and having that kind of thick skin, which I didn't have going there the first time, um, I think will help people understand and realize, okay, this is a different experience. I might have to try this a couple times, mm-hmm. but at least I could say I tried it. Um, and maybe, you know, being a teenager, maybe it'll be different when I'm older. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think no matter what adoptees are going to feel it, they're going to feel like at some point in their life, either when they're going through identity crisis, when they're deciding if they're going to have a family or not, biologically or adopt, adopted, um, when they encounter extreme racism. Um, and like, there was one other one I can't remember. Um, oh, loss of a loved one. That's when you start to question your identity. That's when you really mm -hmm. start to question your own adoption and what like those kind of values um, maybe you hadn't thought about. Start yeah, to that's so true. I didn't even think of that until you just said that, like when you lose somebody, because I'm looking back now and I think like when I started experiencing death, that's also when I started flipping a switch and being like, okay, I guess we're figuring this out yeah. now. Yeah, wow. yeah, there, there are milestones or mm -hmm. just these hard experiences that you go through that spark. And yeah. maybe it's not all of them, maybe just one of them. Um, I remember reading a lot of women contemplating if they want to have a biological child or adopt. And that's a huge thing. Um, that's when they really start to be like, okay, now I really got to start figuring out my identity. I really got to start figuring out, like, does does my heritage matter? Does this DNA section uh, part of, like, relationship actually matter? So I think that was a long-winded way to say, like, please be open-minded when you go um, to your homeland. Um, you know, put forth the effort to try to say some things in your native tongue. They will appreciate that. It'll show that you actually care. Um, you know, that whole thing that, you know, people always extend to white people being like, at least try to learn that place's language. Like, that extends to you because, like it or not, that is where you're from. And so they'd like to see that your parents and you have tried to connect with your heritage, your roots. Um, and that, you know, it might take a time or two, you know, try to try to take things with a grain of salt. If you go to China, you know, there's a 99% chance if you're a female, they'll call you fat. And so you just got to laugh it off and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. Another question. If there's parents out there who are afraid of taking their child to their birth country, maybe it'll be too much for them. You know, they have those parental concerns. They're trying to protect their child. Or maybe they have fears that by taking their child back to the birth country, maybe their child's going to start pulling away from them, what would you tell those parents who have these fears, whatever they may be? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I do talk about this with some, I have talked about this with some other adoptees. Um, there are parents who do worry that like their kids are gonna try to find their birth parents, they bring them back abroad. Um, that, you know, things will change. Um, to be honest, never been a worry I've ever had because I was like, I love my parents. My parents love me. I'm not going to give up my parents who've been there with me through thick and thin for strangers. Because mm. if we're being honest here, our birth families are strangers to us. Yeah. The only thing, like, and I've talked about this with some friends before, I'm like, I don't really care why I was given up. I don't really care, you know, necessarily what the circumstances were. If my birth family is healthy and they're living okay. Um, the one thing I am dying to know is my health records, to know if, like, all right, is, you know, heart attacks and, like, stroke something that, like, I need to start fixing my dietary style so that, like, I don't have that high chance or cancer or things like that. Because, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I do have lots of allergies. I have asthma. I have eczema. Those kinds of things that, you know, are, you know, kind of autoimmune. These are um, immune system and um, 
you know, different issues that I do have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So for me, I know a lot of other adoptees do want to know why they want to be, they were given up. Um, it just depends on the way that your parents have swung the whole thing. Like if your parents are a hundred percent confident in the way that they raised you, they're a hundred percent confident in the fact that like they have given you this unconditional love, they've accepted you as their own blood or otherwise. Um, I don't really think there's anything to worry about because our DNA relationship with whoever those birth parents were is non-existent. It would be awkward to say the least to meet a stranger and be like, you're my biological DNA mother, but like this is actually the mother that's raised me and given me love and nourished me. This is my father. He's been with me for through thick and thin. So for parents who worry about their kids, quote unquote, abandoning them for these birth parents who may or may have not abandoned them as children or have placed them for adoption because of the whatever circumstances they were in, I I think that's something they don't really have to worry about unless, you know, there are adoptees who have parents who have rocky relationships. Um, and I think that's just a different issue in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, parents who worry that they're oral, who adopted from China because they're like, my kid's never going to find their, you know, birth family. And that's why I adopted from China. You know, don't tell your child that. Um, <laughs> that's going to mess with them in all the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's what you're worried about, then I think, and hopefully this has come off rude, but I think that's something you could talk about with a therapist and do family counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if an adoptee really wants to go back, um, it is within their right to. That is yeah. their own heritage. Um, like how... You know, people who have DNA connections do family ancestry. They mm-hmm. have a right to do that. Um, I think adoptees have a right to go back to their home country. Um, yeah. And I do feel bad for adoptees whose parents step in between them having the opportunity to do that because it will affect them in the long run if they don't have that opportunity. It will affect their way they uh, develop their identity and see themselves in the world. Um, so I highly encourage adoptive parents to you know, open up the conversation, have it be a conversation where they can voice their worries. And I bet you the the child's going to be like, yes, I want to go back. If I find my parents at some point, and if I do a birth search kind of thing, that like, I'm not going to leave you. You you spent your life taking care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it should be an open conversation. Um, and, you know, hopefully, because, again, as we've said before, like, this is us going through this. We don't have a ton of older Chinese adoptees who can help us walk us through this. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be a hit or miss. It might be a conversation for a handful of times. Um, but I think it's open-mindedness and having this, like, healthy, safe dialogue between both sides. Um And I just, I, yeah, I highly encourage parents bringing it up to kids and saying, okay, would you like to go abroad? Um, We'll go together. You know, I think it's best to go together. So if you're going to go back to your orphanage, I went with one girl in Shanghai to her hometown. We didn't go to an orphanage. We just spent about eight hours in her hometown. So she could see it. She'd never been back before. Mm -hmm. And she thought it was great. 
she was a bit emotional saying like I haven't been here even with my mom yet and I'm like well you're here with me we'll walk through it we'll go slowly you know you'll just get a taste of it um so it's something to visit there are books out there uh trying to see one of them was like from home to homeland I think that's one of the books I read for um when thinking about it uh there have to be other resources out there or just if adoptive parents they can read or find other adoptee stories about going to their homeland and then see the pros and the cons and how to prep around it um because it's going to take a toll emotionally on both the parents and the kids. So yeah. it's a step-by-step thing. Hopefully yeah, that answers sure. the question. <laughs> yeah, it does. Thank you so much. I guess, too, like bouncing off of that, Libby and I have talked about this in the past, but it's really important that parents who've adopted a child or who are looking to adopt, like a baby's not going to fix your previous traumas. You really need to iron that out. Again, like you said, seek out a therapist. I think that's really important because adopting a child, it's going to bring on a whole load of obstacles that I think are only natural part of the process, but there's going to be obstacles. And I think parents need to be, I don't want to say hyper aware of it, but at least mentally aware of the possibility that a child's going to face different identity crises than a child would if they were biologically related. And those are really um, important things to take into account. Uh, I don't know, Libby, do you have any final thoughts you want to share before? Um, no, I think this has all been great. I love yeah. hearing about your experiences because it's not something that like I don't have anybody in my life that has been able to travel, go back to like their, you know, homeland mm-hmm. as much. And I think it's really cool to hear all your experiences because you've gone to so many places that are not just, you know, like I've only gone to like diversity in like three other cities but to hear you go through like all these experiences is super cool yeah I really appreciated taking um or you taking the time to reach out to us because we always get so excited I'll text love it's like oh my god we have a message go read it um (laughs) (laughs) so whenever we get a message we get really excited we love hearing from you um we especially love when it turns into conversations like this because I know just through hearing your story I think I've learned a lot I've been like reflecting through this last hour or so and I've been thinking a lot about how I guess my own challenges in this whole adoption journey because again like it's really difficult for me to feel connected to Asian culture and really feel comfortable diving into it but hearing your story and hearing how you've done it um I think it's really I don't know it was really good for me to hear it personally and I'm hoping that other adoptees and families really enjoy hearing this um do you have I know you're not super active on social media but if you want to plug your Instagram handle so people can get in touch with you if you want. Yeah, let me find what my Instagram handle <laughs> is for a second. Um, I also run a website called adoptionbeat.org. Okay. Uh, and I'll put that link I, in the description. Awesome. Um, where I do uh, interviews with adoptees, um, where you can find, you know, adoptee creations like your podcast, mm-hmm. along with other works that... Um, I've gotten through CCI or um, AFA, more Asian-based. I'm trying to diversify it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who are African-American, adopted domestically, um, who have put an input as well. 
So, but it is me just running it. So I try to update as much as possible. Um, my handle on Instagram is MayK, M-E-I-K underscore M-K. Um, or you can just go through the website. Um, the Adoption Beats handle, I think, is just, it's uh, Adoption Beat, Adoption B-E-A-T. And you can reach me through either of those. I'm very glad that I was able to talk with you. I would gladly come on again if you guys have any other topics to discuss. I enjoy connecting with other people, you know, in the adoption community. So thank you. Yeah, well, for sure. Thank you so much again. Um, I will put all of the handles and the links in the description so you can contact May and check out that website. I took a quick look at it not too long ago, um, but I want to dive into that a little more. So again, thank you all for sticking around for another episode. I hope that May has given some insight onto what it's like going back to your birth country. I know I learned a lot from this episode. Let us know what you think. You can send us an email at adoptingmeetsworld at gmail.com or send us a DM or leave us a comment at adoptingmeetsworld underscore. If you're on a platform where you can leave us a review or five stars, that would be great. And make sure to share AMW with your friends and family. Talk to you soon. Bye.